This podcast is brought to you by the Nuclear Energy Institute. It powers our cities. It boosts our economy. It creates jobs. It even powers space travel. It's nuclear energy, and it does so much more than you think. Discover all nuclear is doing at discovernuclear.com backslash CQ. From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is the Big Story Podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. I'm Bridget Bowman. And I'm Simone Pathé. And we are two politics reporters at Roll Call. We're filling in for David Hawkins and Jason Dick, who are away this week. And we're glad to be here. Um, Today we're discussing primaries and more specifically the threat of primaries and how that's affecting the 2018 landscape so far. We are almost a year out from the 2018 midterms, hard to believe. Um, But before anyone makes a selection between a Democrat and a Republican on the ballot, many voters will have to make an intra-party selection. And already the tension of those potential primaries are affecting a lot of the races that we are following. Yeah, that's right. So I guess as a quick reminder for everybody, uh, Democrats need a net gain of 24 seats to win back the House. They also need a net gain of three seats to win the Senate. Um, On the Senate side, those gains looked pretty impossible until recently, right? Yeah. I mean, they would have to win Nevada, Arizona, and it looked like for a long time that Texas was their best bet. But Mm -hmm. recently, there's been a few other opportunities that have come up on the map. Yeah. So these Republican primaries that are shaping up on the Senate side have really, you know, made Democrats a little more optimistic about their chances. Simone, can you talk a little bit about some of the races that you're watching and and what we're kind of keeping an eye on? Absolutely. So on the Senate side, the big ones to watch are Alabama. Um, We now have a very controversial Republican nominee there, which has given Democrats a little bit more hope about winning that seat. Mm -hmm. Also in Tennessee, we have an open seat. Senator Bob Corker has announced that he's going to retire at the end of this term. It's up for debate how much potential primary threats to him actually forced his hand here. A lot of folks say he probably would have won pretty comfortably anyway, and he's not the type of person to be scared away by a threat. But he did indeed have several primary challengers, one of whom had met with Steve Bannon and probably would have had a lot of outside support from those sort of more conservative groups. But I want you to talk a little bit more about Alabama, because you were actually there earlier this year and got to meet these candidates up close and have a good understanding of what was going on behind the scenes. Right. So Alabama was kind of the first place where we saw this sort of Republican civil war starting to develop. Um, Alabama is sort of a unique case in that Roy Moore, the judge that you mentioned, who's now the nominee, was already really well known in the state. He was facing Senator Luther Strange, who was backed by McConnell and President Trump. And there was also Congressman Mo Brooks, who uh, was very critical of Trump, but was trying to make the argument that he would be the best uh, supporter for Trump. So you saw kind of this fight in the primary over who's the best supporter for the president. And um, Roy Moore ended up coming out on top. And then during the runoff, when he was facing Luther Strange, that's where you saw kind of Steve Bannon come in. So he's the former White House advisor uh, who runs Breitbart News. And you saw groups that support the president backing Roy Moore, even though Trump was backing Strange. And it was this whole weird (laughs) dynamic. But yeah, you saw this whole dynamic develop there. And Right before the primary runoff, I was talking to a bunch of Republican strategists about what does this mean? What are you seeing going forward when we're looking at these primaries? Some of them said, like, you know, we can't extrapolate too far from this race. But others said 
you know, we do have to think back to 2010, 2012, when these these more kind of on the fringe candidates won Republican primaries. And one strategist said we lost like five seats because these candidates who won the primaries in 2010 and 2012 uh, couldn't win the general election. And Mm -hmm. so you see that kind of same dynamic developing again this cycle. And it's potentially not just Alabama. You've got a few other Senate seats, right, that we're hearing Steve Bannon might be interested yes. in. Yes. Bannon recently went on Fox News and said, I'm declaring war on Republican establishment. When you want to talk about why there's no repeal and replace, why there's no tax cut, why there's no tax reform, why there's no infrastructure bill, you saw it right there. Corker, McConnell and Corker and the entire clique establishment globalist click on Capitol Hill have to go. Basically threatening every single Senate Republican incumbent except Ted Cruz. So we should remind (laughs) everybody that Republicans this year are largely on offense on the Senate. There are only eight Republican seats up. So theoretically, this is supposed to be a cycle where they were going after Democrats. But now if they have to deal with these primaries, that kind of changes the game a little bit. And do we know how much power, firepower, Steve Bannon really has behind him? To what extent is the Alabama race a good indicator? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's something I think that will be really interesting to watch. Um, So we're hearing that candidates are trying to get Bannon's endorsement. But it's not clear yet how much money would be behind that. So some of the pro-Trump groups were way outspent in Alabama. So McConnell's allies that were supporting Strange spent millions of dollars. And I think on air... Some of the pro-Trump groups spent, I think, definitely less than a million. So and more on like get out the vote operations. So that will definitely be key. Like like you said, how much firepower is actually behind this kind of outside movement? And I just don't think we know yet. Alabama is kind of an early case where it, it was very outsized. But mm. we'll just have to see. That's a good point. And it yeah. underscores to me just how different this cycle is. Right. In 2010, when we talked about the Tea Party and the Republican establishment, we kind of knew who was on which side. And now it seems like the Republican landscape is completely jumbled. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even in Alabama, Alabama, as you said, you had pro-Trump groups supporting different candidates than necessarily the president was. And it's hard to know at any time who's on what side and who is going to actually come over to Steve Bannon's side. Mm-hmm. Um, but a quick reminder for our listeners of, of some of the particular senators that he has threatened in the past couple of days, it sounds like Orrin Hatch might be in for a primary challenger, right, if he decides to stick around, which is still an open question. Roger Wicker, of course, and there's a few others, yep. too. Uh, John Barrasso in mm-hmm. Wyoming, he's also a member of leadership. Sure. yeah. Uh, yeah, those are a couple that we're watching. I think Senator Fisher, there's no, in Nebraska, uh, there's no primary challenger there yet, but that might be one to watch as well to see if someone emerges. It's not just the Senate, right? Like, what are you... Exactly, yeah. It yeah, sounds like the it's House. increasingly trickling down to the House level and also the State House level. Mm-hmm. You're hearing reports of candidates from all different down-ballot levels seeking the support of Steve Bannon. Like we said, it's unclear exactly what comes with that support. But for right now, it seems like just having that stamp of approval from the name Bannon and potentially Breitbart and all that comes with that yeah. behind you is enough to energize um, aspirational Republicans who want a new job or want their jobs back in the case of one particular person right. in New York. <laughs> one convicted felon, Michael Grimm. Uh, he's a former congressman who was who has served several months in jail because of tax fraud. He announced recently that he's running again for his seat uh, in New York's 11th district, it, which encompasses Staten Island and, and a little part of New York City. And in his campaign announcement, when I was watching it, he really just 
hugged Trump Mm. very closely and said, you know, accused the current congressman, Republican congressman of not backing Trump's agenda. He said repeatedly, I have the president's back. And he was recently in D.C. meeting with Bannon. And so and his advisor like tweeted out a picture of him and Bannon. Mm. And so it seems like having that approval, like you said, even though it's not clear what comes with that, that that's sort of a way that he can show voters like Trump supporters are with me as well. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see if other primary candidates on the House side could tend to do the same thing. Yeah, I heard the same thing when I was in South Carolina this weekend. I was meeting with a primary challenger to Congressman Mark Sanford, oh, right. um, who is a very conservative member of the House, a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a very specific personal story background that many people know, but you know, ended up winning the seat after a lot of that controversy. But he has been somewhat critical of the president, speaking out against him on a couple issues. Climate change, for instance, is one of them that is, you know, important to the Charleston region. But his primary challenger, State Representative Katie Arrington, thinks he is insufficiently supportive of the president. And she didn't mention Bannon specifically, but it was very clear that any criticism of Trump was enough for her to go after the congressman on. And that is clearly where she is going to be trying to run to his right and really, like you said, hug the president, um, at least in a primary. That's interesting. Do you have any sense of whether how that will play in primary voters in in that district specifically? I'm curious if that's a good argument for them. Yeah, it's a district that's changing a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are moving to Charleston, which is the major population center. Mm. And those people tend to be more educated, younger, um, coming from more metropolitan areas. So the Trump message might not necessarily resonate with them, but you still have enough traditional Republican primary voters outside the city itself Mm. for whom the Trump message could be pretty powerful, even though this district was not um, as early a supporter of him as some other GOP, more establishment candidates. So yet to be seen. And we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. And now, more from our sponsor, the Nuclear Energy Institute. It powers our cities and towns across the country. It creates jobs. It adds billions to the economy. It even powers space travel. Life as we know it wouldn't be life as we know it without it. And it's called nuclear energy. Yes, nuclear energy. Every day, nuclear energy helps us to keep our country running and moving forward. Discover all the things nuclear is doing at discovernuclear.com backslash CQ. Nuclear. Power the extraordinary. And we're back. Welcome back. Uh, So we've been chatting about primaries, focusing on the Republicans, but it's not just the Republicans, right, Simone? Like, Democrats have the same issue that they're dealing with. Yeah, it's been interesting, as we've all been talking about for months now, since the 2016 elections, we've seen both parties been pulled to their various extremes. You know, there was this longstanding debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders throughout the Democratic presidential primary. It never really went away, even Mm -hmm. after Hillary Clinton secured the nomination. We saw it come up again in the uh, DNC leadership fight over who is going to be the new face of the party. We still don't really know who the new face of the party is, right? But we're seeing increasingly in some of these races, very crowded House primaries, of course, on the Democratic side, because the energy and enthusiasm is so high. But increasingly, there might be the chance for some contested primaries to sitting members, too, um, one of which we heard about over the weekend with Senator Feinstein. Right. So Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, is the senior senator from California. She's the most senior female senator. Uh, She announced this weekend, she's 84 years old. She announced that she's going to run again this next year. And that was always a, an, you know, a question of whether or not she was 
step down. And she mentioned uh, that she has a lot more that she wants to fight for. Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing this with other Democrats that they see they see a place where they can really fight back against the Trump mm. administration. And she's in the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, which is one of the committees investigating the Trump administration and Russian interference in the election. So it seems like she sees a lot more work that needs to get done. Uh, but we've even prior to her announcement had seen chatter um, among more liberal members of the party in California, wondering if there would be a primary challenge. And it seems like there could one could pop up. Um, some names to watch are State Senator Kevin DeLeon. He's the Democratic leader in the state Senate. Billionaire Tom Steyer has also not ruled out a primary challenge. So that's <laughs> an important... leaving the door open. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to rule anything out. Um, and interestingly enough, a Politico reported that Congressman Ro Khanna, a Democrat from California, is openly talking about wanting someone to primary Senator Feinstein. And it was encouraging Congresswoman Barbara Lee to step forward. So you see this kind of that's sort of the the only real Democratic primary on the Senate side, but is clearly indicative of the broader fight in the party. Wow, interesting. So members of their own delegation perhaps wanting to oust the senior senator. Senator Feinstein does have the support of the junior senator, Kamala Harris, who has mm-hmm. become a real like face of the progressive movement in, to some extent and is seen as, by other Democrats, a real rising star in their party, potential 2020 mm. candidate and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see how other Democrats, if they take sides in, in this issue or not. Yeah. And so increasingly, it seems like aside from that Senate race, the primary problem, if you want to call it that, on the Democratic Mm -hmm. side is that they just have way too many candidates. So many, so many (laughs) candidates. It's hard for us to keep track of, let alone candidates to keep track of. Yeah, definitely. But we're seeing especially, you know, with fundraising reports coming out, a lot of these candidates, three, four, five of them in competitive districts are all raising really serious money, Mm -hmm. which begs the question of how expensive are these primaries going to be and who's going to be the one to make it through? Um, I've spoken to a lot of senior Democrats who are kind of getting nervous, right, that Mm. if they don't get the most qualified candidate, of course, everyone has a different opinion about what most qualified is, depending on which interest group you're backing. Mm -hmm. But if they don't get that person through the primary, then they're going to have lost key pickup opportunities. Um, One example is in Illinois. There's a lot of crowded races and their primary is really early. It's March 20th. Mm. Um, So Illinois was a state last year where the Democrats really kind of passed up on some opportunities because they didn't have candidates in races that further down the line could have been competitive. And so the fear is that, you know, if they nominate someone who may have run before, maybe an activist, but maybe doesn't have necessarily the the strongest campaign team behind them, they're not going to be the best fit for a general election. And that's always a concern, right, in primaries when we see that the candidate who gets nominated is either too far to the left or too far to the right to be palatable to general election voters. But it's not just Illinois. There's tons of places where this is. I'm curious, when you've been talking to those different Democrats, what are you hearing in terms of the willingness to play, of like party organizations to play? Because I feel like the DCCC has indicated that they're willing to play in some of these primaries, but is there hesitancy there of not... Being, being involved enough to help but not being too involved that it becomes a problem for the candidate? Right. I think there's always a hesitancy to show your cards too early, mm-hmm. right? And it is early, and, and that means that there are still candidates who have not even gotten into these races yet. I mean, the filing deadlines might not be until the winter or next spring, so there's plenty of time for new people to come on the map. Um, but I think there is the 
the hope and the desire among some senior Democrats that the DCCC will start to weigh in and not necessarily do it explicitly, but behind the scenes, you know, send in folks into these districts who can sort of behind the scenes orchestrate it so that um, the candidate they think has the strongest shot, mm-hmm. has the right infrastructure, has the campaign team on the ground, has volunteers, et cetera, to make sure they get through the primary. And just to clarify the DCCC, that's referring to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. That's Democrats' campaign arm on the House side. Yes. Some of these races definitely are are fascinating to watch. And it seems like the DCCC, also to another extent, is trying to make sure that these candidates do have some kind of campaign infrastructure. So whoever comes out of the primary is like ready to go. Right. Um, But I'm curious, I know... You mentioned uh, when we were talking about Virginia 10 as mm. that being sort of one of those races that Democrats really want to win yeah. and that has a bunch of candidates. Can you talk break that down a little bit? Yeah. What that so Virginia 10 is Barbara Comstock's district. It's mm-hmm. a fairly suburban district outside of Washington, D.C. So we here in the district hear a lot about it, um, mostly because the ads that air in that region are on the D.C. media market. But it's also gotten some rural pockets, too, that make it slightly more conservative. Um, mm-hmm. And you've seen Representative Comstock try to moderate herself. She knows that she has to be a quote-unquote moderate Republican. Um, She's voted against some of the health care plans. She's voted against plans that would have hurt federal workers or the metro system, for example. A lot of federal employees live out in these Virginia suburbs. But for Democrats, this is like the ideal district where they need to win in 2018. It's well-educated. It's Mm -hmm. suburban. It went for Hillary Clinton. Like, that's the trifecta. So the task is really to make sure that they have the candidate who can take advantage of all of those scenarios. There's a couple women running. There's a veteran running. There's a lot of different candidates, and they're all raising serious money. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see in a primary, and potentially in that district, it's interesting, they might not even have a primary. They might have a nominating convention in which the, the district party would then actually vote on who the nominee is rather than the voters. So sort of a particular scenario there, but that's yet to be determined. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, there's definitely a lot to watch, and (laughs) we will keep watching it and keep you all informed. Um, Thank you, Simone. Uh, And I'm again, I'm Bridget Bowman. Uh, We're both politics reporters at Roll Call. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and NPR One.